my guest for the day, grew up with a constant underlying interest in equity. She took up a career in public health and epidemiology that led her into the governor's office as a policymaker. Now, she has moved into a career in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and recently started a brilliant podcast called Black Oxygen. I'm Ben Brown, and this is the Madisonian Podcast. Black Oxygen is a podcast that showcases conversations that Angela Russell has with amazing black people here in Wisconsin. Her group of guests she invites on are amazing people that have eclectic backgrounds, much like the guests of the Madisonian podcast. I understand the time and the commitment it takes to create a weekly podcast, so I have a large degree of respect for Angela and her podcast and her conversations. I also understand the massive benefits that come with a podcast. These dialogues that we're having are so rich and carry so much meaning in in my eyes that I will ultimately bring with me for the rest of my life. And I believe that Angela Russell is probably feeling a similar way to me. Yesterday, I biked to meet my friend and pick up a donut. Outside the bakery, I ran into a guest I had on the show back in July. We chatted for a minute and and both went in the bakery. He told the worker behind the counter that he was going to pay for our order. I think in that moment, I fully understood the impact that this podcast has had on me. I, I have met so many incredible people, even virtually and have been able to share their stories and learn what challenges and obstacles they face and what successes they've had and truly gotten to know so many people on a level I would never have been able to without this podcast. And this week, I talked to someone who's having these in-depth conversations in such a meaningful way. Now, please enjoy my interview with Miss Angela Russell. So I was born in Peoria, Illinois, which used to be the headquarter of Caterpillar Tractors. They moved their headquarters to Chicago just a few years ago. And my parents were both graduates of historically black colleges and universities. So my mom is from my uh, my mom is from Louisiana and my dad is from Alabama. My dad went to Alabama State University and my mom went to Grambling State University and Caterpillar Tractors was recruiting from HBCUs in the 70s and they were both recruited and ended up in Peoria. They met each other through a coworker, and yeah. And, and so I was in, uh, my parents were both in corporate. My dad also owned some rental property on the side and my parents were heavily involved in the church. So both of my parents, um, yeah, my mom played the piano for the church for a while. My dad was a deacon and then they helped start a church in Peoria as well. And that church started in my parents' house, I, I remember that vividly. So grew up very much in the Black Baptist Church, but also attended a, a white Catholic school. So um, yeah, and then I, in high school, I was went to Catholic high school. I was very involved in this thing called Teens Encountering Christ and met my husband to be there and ended up getting married and 
and I'm divorced now, but yeah. So met my, the guy that I married when I was in high school. Yeah. I, I was a super awkward, nerdy kid. And as a grown up, I'm a super awkward, nerdy grown up. <laughs> right. So do you remember like, I mean, paying attention to, to race at all as a kid growing up, you know, in like a white Catholic environment in school? I mean, you, you were a part of the black Baptist church, but you know, as, as a kid going to school, you know, I do. I remember it very well. In fact, um, I went back to some of my journals. I started keeping a journal when I was 12 or 13. And I recently gave the journals to my kids so they can look, look at it. Um, it's pretty embarrassing <laughs> what I was <laughs> writing about and all of the crushes that I had. But I did write about race a fair amount, um, really? even at, as a 12 year old, um, 13 year old, because I, I, I felt like I was living in two different worlds and going back and forth between two different worlds pretty constantly. Um, so yeah, that's been a something that I've been paying attention to a lot. And I even in high school, I was involved in this thing called, um, it was through our local urban league in Peoria called Tomorrow Scientists, Technicians and Managers, where it was all black kids that were kind of um, college bound and going into leadership roles in the future. Um, but it was a cohort of black kids doing that together all throughout high school. Wow. So I did have a foot in a lot of different worlds. Yeah. I was, again, I was a super nerd. Um, I was in like honor science and um, it started off in honors math, but then eventually not in honors math at all uh, over time, but um, was a band geek, was on the speech team, went to speech camp to learn about competition <laughs> for speech camp was really into French, took uh, French for four years, went to France for a little bit. And um, my cohort of friends, we are, we are literally so nerdy. It was like the band geek of friends and we created our own little poetry club and we had nicknames on the, pa on the back of our t-shirts and we were kind of emo, <laughs> pretty emo. But um, yeah, it was, it was a fun group of friends and there's a couple of them that I'm still very much close to today. So it was, it was good. Yeah. So kind of what was the high school experience for you and, and, and kind of what did you have in, in your mind as like, maybe like what you would go into in the future? I was um, very focused in on science. When I was in high school, I was um, wanting to be a doctor specifically. I wanted to be a pediatric oncologist. I wanted to work with kids that had cancer. I was very, very focused in on that. Um, even kind of when I was in speech competitions, I did prose around kids that had cancer. That was my thing. I was in health clubs, taking a lot of science, um, volunteered a lot in the hospitals, and then also volunteered at a physical therapy organization. Um, but so super hyper-focused in on that. And I, this is kind of embarrassing now, but I read the book Gifted Hands by Ben Carson when I was in high school. And I, <laughs> I know, very embarrassing. And I went to go see him speak and everything. And I'm like, oh my God, Ben Carson. And I'm not like that anymore. But <laughs> that's, yeah, I was very much into um, that. I'm pretty sure the first time I read Seven Habits of Highly Effective People was when I was in high school. <laughs> So I was, I was pretty goal focused. Wow. So what, what did you do out of high school? I mean, what was like, did you, yeah, what was next for you after high school? 
So I went to college. I went to a little organ, a little school called Beloit College, which is about 45 minutes away from here in Madison. And the reason I chose Beloit College, actually, I had never heard of it, but a, a friend of mine in my youth group from church, actually, I'll back up for a second. So in high school, my parents uh, left the church that they helped found and started going to an Assemblies of God church, a white Assemblies of God church. And that was why. I, I don't fully know anymore, <laughs> but it was intense and I wasn't necessarily happy about it, but whatever. I made some friends in the youth group. And um, one of the women that I was friends with in the youth group, she was also interested in studying medicine. And she went to Beloit College a year before me and introduced me to it. And at that time, they had Beloit College had an affiliation with Rush University in terms of medical school. So if you attended um, Beloit College and did well, you could automatically get um, uh, uh, accepted to Rush Medical School. That program, she was the last cohort of that program, which is fine. But I toured several different schools. I toured, well, a whole bunch of HBCUs. But then I also toured um, University of Alabama, because that's where my dad's from. Uh, also Washington University in St. Louis and um, Beloit College. And literally Beloit College was a place that I felt most at home. As soon as I saw someone on campus walking around with a purple mohawk, I'm like, yes, <laughs> this is where I want to be. Because again, I've always kind of marched to the beat of my own drummer. And I liked that notion of creativity and being yourself. And I felt like that's where I wanted to be. And that's where I ended up going. So Again, I was still pre-med when I was um, in, in undergrad. I have a degree in biochemistry and a minor in uh, healthcare studies. But in between my sophomore and junior year in college, I had an internship at the state health department. And I got really interested in why there are differences in health by race. So I um, had this internship with a, it, it used to be called the Women's Cancer Control Program. And I was looking at the disparities between black and white women related to breast cancer mortality in Wisconsin. And that's what got me interested in epidemiology and policy, population level health and policy changes, because that's when I learned that you can actually make more of a difference, potentially more of a difference at a population level through policy change than an individual doctor could. Um, and, and I learned that I didn't like being around sick people either. <laughs> and, and what did you ultimately like uh, learn from your from your uh, research in, into that those disparities, specifically in, in breast cancer? Yeah, yeah, there's so much at that time that gosh, that was more than 20 years ago now. At that time, so much of it had to do with um, detection and when the breast cancer was detected. So black women were getting um, detected their breast cancer was getting detected at a later stage than white women and lots of times that ha had to deal with um, access to health care but we also know that um, so much of health care and health outcomes specifically is driven by this thing called the social determinants of health so where you live plays such an impact on the health of your community um, economic and social well-being, environmental stuff, all of that impacts the health of communities over time, even beyond access to health care. So those are kind of some of the things that I um, have been interested in over time. Yeah. So wh where did you go with, with your epide epidemiology kind of uh, bug? So I, I, when I was in that internship, I met the, the chief medical officer at the time was this guy named Pat Remington. I think he graduated from West as well. 
And he ended up, he was just ending his sentence as chief medical officer when I was there. And he ended up being a professor at the um, School of Medicine here. At, um, and I ended up staying in contact with him. And I got really interested in uh, epidemiology. So I started taking some courses uh, in, while I was still in undergrad um, that included uh, medical anthropology, economics, and sociology. And I got even more interested than I thought. So I ended up going to grad school here in Madison and got my, my degree in population health. And my degree was focused in on chronic disease epidemiology. And I got to do some research with my mentor and advisor, um, Pat Remington. We did some diabetes stuff. We did some in-stage renal disease stuff. We did some analysis on the trend of overweight and obesity in Wisconsin. And then eventually I ended up working at the center um, at the medical school. It no longer exists, but it, it existed for a little bit called the Center for the Study of Cultural Diversity in Healthcare. And it's all about how culture influences health and health outcomes um, over time. So I, I did that for a little bit and did that even after I graduated with my, my, my master's degree um, for a little bit. And then I ended up going to the state health department to be an epidemiologist Focus on hepatitis C and hepatitis B and HIV Hep C co-infection. So, so what kind of what kind of work were you doing uh, with with those uh, those uh, viruses or, or? Yeah, crunching data and writing reports all of the time. And then we did this um, analysis in the state in the in partnership with the state lab of hygiene to look at the trends of HIV and hepatitis C co-infection in the prison system as well. Wow. Um, so that was super interesting, but I knew that I wasn't interested in just sitting behind a desk, crunching numbers and writing reports all the time. What I, what I had an ultimate interest in was how do you use that data and how do you use data to make policy change over time to impact the health of communities? Uh, when I was at that job, I ended up going through this program called Wisconsin Women in Government, teaching women about leadership skills in government and I met a variety of people. And then I met the then Lieutenant Governor Barbara Lawton. I ended up in her job with a job in her office for a little bit, but ultimately that led to a job with Governor Jim Doyle. So I worked in his office for about three years as a policy advisor and agency liaison. And then I was a member of a team to create what's now called the Department of Children and Families. And when I was there, I led external communications, um, employee communications, and our relationships with um, Congress, uh, Wisconsin legislature, the governor's office, and our tribal nations. How did your work kind of like uh, differ from like the crunching numbers stuff that you were doing uh, as an epidemiologist? Yeah, um, I, I think the crunching numbers informed how I even analyze and see data to this day, which is super helpful. But um, it, it turned from crunching numbers to all to being mostly about relationships, under, understanding policy and policy implications, but also knowing that in order to make effective change, it has to be built on effective trusting relationships. So, um, and to this day, my work is so much based on relationships because it's hard to make change in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion because people's defenses come up so quickly. So in order to have that mutual sharing of knowledge, you have to create a space where you can develop trusting relationships over time. Yeah, so tell me about the work that you did kind of with the governor, Governor Doyle and, and, and yeah. It was so fun. Um, 
and surprising too. So uh, I'll just give an example. As a policy advisor back then, one of the things that you he would have is anytime you he had an event, you'd have the communications people do the speech stuff and the outreach people do connect uh, create the event and the event planning, but there's always a policy document. It was called the lead staff document that you'd have to get, make sure that the governor had the night before so he could read through all the information to be prepped for any type of questions that he would get from media or constituents or anything else, the, any kind of detail that he would want beyond the talking points. And that lead, lead um, staff document would go to the communication shop, would go to the external affairs shop and would get in the governor's binder. So I did a lot of those on a variety of different um, topics. And then every once in a while, if you were the lead staff on a particular event, you would get to go to the event with the governor as well. And that was that was fun. So being in the motorcade, the governor's motorcade every once in a while, being really awkward around the governor because, you know, <laughs> that's what I would do or going on one of the flights on Bucky Badger 1 or Bucky Badger 2. Um, terrifying at first, but it was also fun. Yeah. So what did you do next? Like, how did you kind of transition out of out of that work and into whatever you did next? Well, when you're in a political appointee, when that, that political appointee politician is no longer there, you're out of a job. So after that, I went back to the university and worked at the Population Health Institute. I worked on this project called the County Health Rankings and Roadmaps. And it's a project that was in partnership with the, the Population Health Institute and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And the whole purpose of the project is to rank how healthy communities are today and what they're projected to be in the future. And my role in that project was community engagement lead. So I was working with states and municipalities on how they can interpret their data to inform policy change. And one of the big things that we, we would see in communities, of communities that, had, um, that were less educated or had less economic well-being, had poorer health outcomes. So really talking about that all of this, all of the things around um, wages and healthy work environments and um, just environmental health, all of that connects to the overall health of a community over time and working with communities on how they can understand their data and really use it to put forward a path towards change over time. And that was fun. So I did that for a few years and then I transitioned to the local health department doing health equity for um, our local health department here. And now then I'm here at CUNY Mutual Group. And what's funny is that I told my parents I would never, ever, ever go corporate. And yet here I am in a corporate job and I absolutely love it. So, I mean, you kind of have had this underlying um topic of, of equity as you've said like you've researched like equity in public health equity and all these different positions um uh, what do you think like inspired like that um underlying topic to ultimately that became your you know the field that you're working in now yeah um yeah, I, it's interesting because I've been interested in this topic for such a long time. It's never, it's never as if there is one light bulb that went off. Um, I remember when my uncle, who lives who lives in Texas, he gave me this book on sociology and race when I was twelve. Again, back to the nerd. 
<laughs> and I'm just like, and it's called We Will Not Be Saved. And um, I think I'm the only niece um, out of his nieces and nephews that he gave this book to. And because um, he thought I'd be interested in it. And it's true. I've just been interested so much in terms of how race, culture, ethnicity, gender drives certain societal outcomes. And knowing that we each have the power to create something different for to make a better future for all of us. And that's the part that's the most exciting. Um, it's really disheartening kind of when you look back at our history, but realizing that the, the history, there were decision points and choice points all along the way that could change the trajectory. And same thing we have now, there are choice points that we have all along the way that can change things. So at CUNA Mutual Group, one of our things that one, our main mission is to create um, a brighter financial future for everyone by having accessible products and services. We can't do that unless we really know the, what people are struggling with, what our communities are struggling with and all of that. The other thing that I think about in terms of finances a lot is FinTech. We know that so much of what's happening is gonna be done by AI and financial technology, FinTech. So what are the biases that we were building in place that we may not be aware of that are gonna amplify disparities over time? So it's really important that corporations such as CUNY Mutual and other organizations are really beginning to look at not only the biases that are in place in terms of their workplace, but also the unintentional biases that are created in our product services and policies and how we do our work. So. And to clarify, CUNA Mutual is the Credit Union National Association. Is that correct? Yeah. So kind of. Oh, we're, sorry. We're, yeah, we're related to CUNA. I'm at CUNA Mutual Group, which is a for, uh, for-profit organization. CUNA is the trade organization for credit unions. CUNA Mutual is that we're a financial services organization that provides products and services to credit unions, their members, and beyond. So if you think about... Um, retirement, life insurance, annuities, a whole variety of uh, executive benefits, a whole variety of products and services to help credit unions, their members, and folks beyond that. Yeah. So um, kind of what was the decision to transfer out of public health and epidemiology? I mean, I know you've had this passion for equity, but like kind of was it hard to, to leave this something that you were probably passionate about kind of behind? Yeah, it was it was hard and nerve wracking because again, this is the first time I've been in corporate. Never, I've mostly been in government or academia, so I was nervous on um, what am I am I going to fit? It, will this be the right place for me? But I've found that I feel like I can make more change here and be an influencer for change, not like an Instagram influencer, <laughs> an influencer for change within an organization more than I could when I was in government. So I feel like I'm at the right place at the, at the right time. Um, and kind of what the inflection point for me was, was a play date. So my son, Ben, had a play date with one of his best friends. And his friend's mom said, hey, do you want to stay for a glass of wine? And I'm like, sure. And she's like, uh, well, we're thinking about creating a position at CUNA Mutual related to diversity and inclusion. And she was starting asking me all of these questions because she knew my background. And then towards the end of the conversation, she said, well, do you know anyone who would be interested in applying? I'm like, yeah, I do. <laughs> I think it's me. So that's how that started. And um, when I was interviewing for the job, I asked leadership 
are you all interested in doing this for real? Or are you just looking for window dressing? Because if you're looking for window dressing, I'm not the right person. But if you're interested in for real, um, let's talk. And and ha, ha, were they have they ultimately what have you done uh, or, or what work are you are you doing with Kuna Mutual? Yeah, I love this organization, and it's there's so many things that I love about this organization. Number one is that our our CEO has been leading the charge. So even before I was there, our CEO, um, Bob Trunzo, added inclusion as a corporate value. And that's a big deal because there are a lot of organizations that say they want to do this work, but their leadership really isn't bought in. So that's important. Another thing that's really interesting for me as it relates to CUNY Mutual Group is Bob, the CEO, and I have both worked for governors. I worked for a Democratic governor, Jim Doyle. Bob worked for Tommy Thompson, a Republican. So the fact that we have can come to the purpose and the, the, the strength of DEI from such different political backgrounds is a big deal. And because so many people say that DEI is political, eh, no, it actually transcends politics. So the fact that he and I can have really great conversations about what we need to do for our organization and our consumers is really, really beautiful. So we've been able to, um, we have, 13 different employee resource groups. So that's affinity groups. Each one of those groups receives, has an annual budget of $2,000 per year to host a variety of activities. Um, we have combined our diversity and inclusion work with our corporate social responsibility work. And what we see there is that we wanna center equity in our workplace and center equity in terms of how we do philanthropy. Um, we've seen a lot of creativity start to happen throughout our organization. Spoken word is actually used as a, as a tool for different employee communications now. So infusing art and employee communications and just, you know, allowing folks to have, to, to be their full selves at the, in the workplace, which has been really wonderful. So as, as a former epidemiologist, when you saw uh, coronavirus kind of start to, you know, come up in, about February, late February, early March of last, about a year ago. Um, kind of what were your your thoughts uh, as someone who, who was in the public health sphere for so long? Yeah, honestly, I didn't have enough information. So I'm like, what is this? What's going on? And I didn't do a deep dive into it because I was so like into my work and into what my kids needed at the time, I didn't do a deep dive. But eventually I knew that we were seeing, that we were gonna see an amplification of um, disparate impact because we, know, we knew we were seeing that um, folks with chronic health diseases or whatever were dying more often. And at baseline, black and brown folks were, are more likely to have chronic health issues. I knew, that, that that would amplify the death disparity. Um, so I knew, knew that that was gonna happen. I didn't know that it was gonna be quite as horrific as it has been. Um, just because again, I wasn't close to it. I didn't, I didn't, yeah, I didn't know. And yeah, it's been quite a, quite a journey. And the other thing as a mom, I thought that, and this is where I've made some mistakes, I thought that if we did like an analysis that if I taught my kids about communicable disease epidemiology through gamification, this gamified website that CDC has, they'll be a little less scared of, you know, 
coronavirus that that backfired I, I don't recommend that I just thought it would be a cool opportunity to kind of teach them epidemiology and all this other kind of stuff um but yeah that backfired that made it more scared than than not um I have the other thing that I've just that just continues to baffle me and make me chuckle a little bit is how much human behavior contributes to epidemics right like there are simple things that we all could do and yet it's not necessarily happening. So, right. um, and that, that happens so much uh, in not only just in terms of coronavirus, but other areas of communicable disease that some things are very preventable and yet um, we're not doing what we need to do to, um, to take that precaution. Yeah. So tell me about black oxygen and, and, and kind of how, how that came about and where did that idea come from? Yeah, black oxygen. I love this little podcast. So I was, before the pandemic, I would go out and give a lot of talks all across the nation. And I was giving a talk at a credit union event in California. And the night before the event, the guy who was organizing it, a black guy in California who works for this credit union, he and I went out to dinner and we were just talking about the differences of being black in Wisconsin versus um, being black in Inglewood, California, blah, 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 blah. And he just looks at me. He's like, you know what you need? I'm like, what? He's like, you need a little extra dose of black oxygen. I'm like, huh? So I did that, that phrase just kind of stuck with me over time. Um, and then I met with the editor of Madison 365 and, um, another co colleague, a friend of mine, Opal, and we were just chatting. And Henry's like, well, maybe you should write a column on Madison 365 called Black Oxygen. And I'm like, nah, that doesn't feel right. I'm a slow writer. Nah. And it just kind of kind of kind of kept nagging at me. And I'm just like, what I want to do is amplify black voices in Madison, or not in Madison, um, in Wisconsin. Because I love Wisconsin. There are a lot of incredible black folks in Wisconsin. And a lot of folks just don't know each other and don't even know that there's a black population to cater to in Wisconsin. So that was a goal. I love talking to folks. I love facilitating good conversations. So how do we create this podcast to amplify black voices in Wisconsin? And that's what it is. I absolutely love it. I am stunned on a regular basis and just about the depth and breadth of black folks that we have in the state is just beautiful and amazing. What, what do you think you, you've learned as, as, you know, this with Black Oxygen? What do you think you've learned? Yeah, there are a couple of things that I've learned. Number one, I didn't know how much I needed it. I didn't know how much I actually needed the podcast at all. So it, it helps me tremendously. It also, I didn't know, I thought it was going to be mostly um, the white community, or not the white, the Black community kind of listening in but it's everyone. Um, and I've also been surprised that it's, it's not just Wisconsin based. I have people in who from North Carolina who text me about it from Seattle, Washington, who text me about it just all over. And that's been really surprising. I've also learned that, and you know, this Ben doing a podcast is a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of work. And each episode, I don't know about you, I listen to um, once or twice before it's aired. 
-hmm. I write the description, Mm -hmm. you know, finding that, uh, doing that. I work with a external producer for the edits, which is great, but um, it's a lot of work. But the beauty in the voices that are on the show are amazing. And it's also taught me that the voices of Black folks in Wisconsin need to be amplified more because there have been so many people that have said, I didn't know this person, thank you so much, or, oh my God, I can't, this happening. And just learning about each other in really beautiful ways. So that's been, it's a gift in a way that I did not even realize that it would be. Yeah. How is your assorted work with, with Black Oxygen and, 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 well, Black Oxygen came about in COVID, but uh, kind of how has it all been affected by COVID? Oh, <laughs> sorry for the big sigh. No, it's okay. <laughs> it's been I'll be honest, it's been really hard. It's been really hard. So I've got two kids, they're doing virtual learning. um, And they want mama a lot. And um, even today, I was was presenting and then all of a sudden, my my daughter comes in with a plate of food for me, she gets me lunch sometimes, which is great. But I mean, sometimes it shouldn't happen when I'm presenting, but whatever, it's COVID times. Um, It's been hard to compartmentalize. I miss my drive to work when I would be listening to NPR to get kind of started for the day. Um, Now getting started for the day is making sure the kids are on their computers before I rush into a meeting. Um, Yeah, it's been kind of exhausting and I'm ready for it to be done. I miss meeting coworkers for a cup of coffee. I miss my kids not being so anxious all of the time. I miss having normal dreams like now I have dreams about going out in public, freaking out that I forgot my mask. Right. And I'm like, oh, this is so annoying. Or you go out and you go to a public place and no one has masks on except for you. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, COVID has particular has impacted things for sure. But I will say I don't know if Black Oxygen would have started had it not been for COVID. I was ruminating on the idea. Right. But it was something it it just became very clear to me that we needed to do something and we needed to do something now. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I I don't want to keep you too much longer. Is there is there anything else you want to say to the listeners at all? No, thank you so much, Ben, for like amplifying the Madison voice. It's really great. How's it been for you? Uh, it's been really good. I mean, I started this in June. Um, I've talked to like 35 people. 36 people yeah and and I, I it's just been awesome hearing so many different you know ideas and stories and just everyone is so different and I just compiled this like like group of eclectic people who all have these different crazy you know life stories and and it's so interesting and I think it's just opened my eyes a lot to a lot of different experiences and a lot of different things that you know i wouldn't have been able to without this podcast and and without basically covid yeah for sure for sure yeah thanks for taking the time yeah thank you If you would like to listen to Black Oxygen, you can find it wherever you're listening now. 
The Madisonian Podcast is a production of Benjamin Brownie in association with We Are Productions. It's hosted by me, Ben Brown, cover art, editing, producing, and booking also by me. If you're at Madisonian and would like to be on the show, please email me at ben at themadisonianpodcast.com to express interest. Please support us by buying our brand new line of merch at teespring.com slash stores slash the Madisonian podcast or click the link in the description of this episode. Not sure if you noticed, but there's brand new cover art of our podcast and with new cover art comes new merch. You can still buy the classic styles. It's all on our merchandise website there or you can visit our website, click on the shop section and find our merchandise. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode and keep an eye out for next week's episode.